This is a Federal News Network podcast. The longer it takes the Biden administration to get its final fiscal year 2022 appropriation request out, the worse that'll be for federal contracting. By one account, the final numbers might not gel until February. My next guest says that would have a negative and serious effect on federal procurement, you know, buying stuff from contractors. For more, we turn to federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And that February prediction is coming from Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And could it be that the budget would not come out until deep into the fiscal year, the budget request? Tom, it's certainly possible that we won't, might not get appropriations until February of 2022. That would be unusually late by historical standards, but really not by more recent standards. More recent experience has had us have uh, appropriations come out in February or even later in two or three over the last half a dozen years. So while that's a real problem, not just for contractors, but for the government agencies in terms of things like continuity, planning, being able to meet ongoing needs, it certainly isn't out of the question. Here we are now in a time of period in the spring where we usually have a president's budget request and it's not here. It's even late by late standards. And while Congress is continuing to do the appropriations work that it needs to do, not having that budget out from the president is certainly going to cause some delays. And Todd, I think, was saying that those delays could really be compounded and we could end up with, in effect, about two-thirds of a fiscal year. Yes, because a couple of members of the appropriations committees have said they want to do things in a timely way and they want to have separate bills instead of one big omnibus. And so they are thinking about it. It's not like Congress is ignoring this. But I guess as a practical matter, without having a line-by-line request coming in from the administration, then Congress doesn't really have a departure point to do its work, I think is what's going on here. And so everyone might have a gigantic top-line figure but that's not really helpful for agencies in the appropriation process. They need to know my program, my budget line, my codes. Well, that's exactly right. Without guidance from the executive branch, congressional appropriators are working with very limited knowledge. And working, they are. So that's not like they're standing still just waiting. But even so, Tom, not having that specificity from where this administration would like to take its spending priorities Really, all Congress can do is either guess or follow on the blueprint that they did in the previous year, which had a different administration and different priorities. But they can't wait until the very 11th hour in order to start the appropriations process. Otherwise, we'll never get an appropriations measure at all. I do think that we're going to be looking more at February. Some of the statistics and analysis show that if you wait this long for a budget and you have a very partisan Congress with micro-thin majorities in each chamber, that you're going to have a lot of deal-making that has to get done. And the people who hold the ace cards know that, and they're not going to be in any hurry to play them. So if you're a federal agency hoping for continuity, for planning, for being able to start projects next year relatively on time, good luck, because that's probably not going to happen if you're relying on appropriated funds. If you're a contractor, that means that you're really going to see a very slow start to the next fiscal year on top of what has been a historically slow start for this fiscal year, Tom. 
leading some people to believe whether or not the federal government market is really turning into a one-quarter wonder, that ride of the Valkyries that we've talked about before that comes around in the summertime as we move into fall as agencies have use-it-or-lose-it dollars. They simply have to get out the door. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Yeah, so the danger then is appropriations coming essentially halfway through the fiscal year means no new projects can really get started until that point. And by then, agencies, they're afraid to start anything because then pretty soon they're out of the fiscal year and there's no funds anyway. Well, that's right. They're going to have to uh, cram an awful lot of government procurement actions into a short period of time. And while there are certainly mechanisms in place that allow for quick allocation of money, it should be no surprise that this is also when errors occur. Think about just trying to get out of your own house when you're pressed for time. Yeah, that search for the keys can make the difference between stress and uh, not stress and being even later than you already are. So it's the same sort of thing here. It doesn't make for good government overall. There are allowances that you make every four years for a new administration or new priorities. So I'm not trying to say that this is totally out of the woods, but even by transition standards, we're behind the curve. And switching gears here, there is one good piece of news, and that is coming from the Technology Modernization Fund overseers last week, saying that they're doing away in some cases with the need to repay the money that is taken from the TMF now at a billion dollars and possibly $1.5 billion if appropriations for the regular fiscal ever happen. So that that eases agencies' pressure to maybe take those funds and use them to modernize. Tom, this is a, I think, potential good news story in a market where we tend to sometimes be the chicken littles of forecasting. The sky is not always falling. So with the Technology Modernization Fund flexibility, the bottom line is more agencies are going to be able to apply for different types of projects than they were before. I recommend that contractors work closely with their government agency partners on these projects. Everybody that wants a slice of the Tech Modernization Fund pie has to make an application. And the best applications, I think, are the ones where industry and government work together to submit an application on behalf of an agency. But as you noted, we don't now have to repay everything, whereas before the Tech Modernization Fund was if you had $100 million out, you had to pay $100 million back, and you had to have a plan for how that was going to happen up front in your application. Now there's more flexibility. There's an understanding that while we certainly expect funds to be repaid. Most of the time, there are going to be some opportunities for either partial or no repayment. And it really speaks to the fact that there's criticality in some of these systems that isn't obviously discernible by a return on investment, but nevertheless play important roles in the function of agencies. And the board did give a list of allowable types of projects that would be funded under the TMF, but that was really such a wide range of possibilities that I don't think it rules out much. Well, they certainly align with the current priorities, Tom. Things such as cybersecurity, which I think is the first, second, and third government technology priority. I think cloud was on there. So the types of issues and projects that the fund is thinking about supporting shouldn't come as any surprise to government IT professionals or IT contractors. And customer experience was on there, improvement on that. 
and delivery of citizen services. And, of course, cybersecurity relates to that because you can't deliver everything if your system is crashed or, or hacked or somehow compromised by cyber. So, yeah, I mean, cyber seems to be the axis around which all of this is spinning. It is. And I think this administration in particular, Tom, has been very clear that they expect the citizen service, the citizen experience to improve with the investment of technology. So as government agencies move forward, they really ought to be looking on that citizen facing element, not just the internal systems that's uh, coming direct from this White House. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is going to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, 
I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, 
What comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick. Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.